How many of you are ready for 2021 to start? Yeah, yeah, I, I know, uh, I know. Um, I, I, I wanted to put up just a, a few uh, of memes that I saw that I thought, yeah, this, this kind of speaks kind of well into uh, maybe how a, a lot of people or maybe some people feel. And so uh, um, today's message is entitled, Finding Hope When Everything Looks Hopeless. Real upbeat kind of message to get ready for the new year, right? Well, um, we're going to be looking in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. But for these first few memes, I wanted to get us going and see if maybe that didn't kind of capture some of what you might feel or think as well. So the first one is going to ask my mom if that offer to slap me into next year is still on the table. And my mom's sitting back here, and she says, yeah, it is, right back over there. Look at that. That was a great way to get started, huh? Whew. And the next one, and this one might be a little harder for you to read, but 2020, written by Stephen King, directed by Quentin Tarantino, and directed by Sam, or narrated by Samuel L. Jackson. That sounds like a pretty uh, upbeat, ready kind of one to do. And then finally... I like this one. Years from now, we're going to be like 2018, 2019, 2021, 2022. Hey, you missed. Nope. We don't talk about that one. All right? And so I just thought, hmm, you know, there was a whole bunch of others. But uh, I, I did want to recap some of the things that took place this past year and maybe so you could have a better understanding of why I felt preaching out of Lamentations, um, at least for me, uh, that God was speaking into my heart. And uh, hopefully he's going to speak into yours as well, as well. Some of the things that took place this past year. I remember last January walking out of church and there was a whole bunch of people looking at their, at their texts on their phones and they were just like, Kobe Bryant just died. And it was like, no, that's got to be a joke. And even some other people said, that's a joke. But that happened on a Sunday, January 26th. And uh, him and um, eight others aboard that helicopter, including the, the pilot. Um, the coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic was declared by the World Health Organization. President Trump declared a national emergency on March 13th. Sports shut down, amateur and professional. Schools were closed and forced to do online learning. Parents uh, were working remotely while helping their kids doing homeschooling. Oh boy, hasn't that been fun, parents? Right? Um, Zoom meetings became the new normal and new terms like Zoom fatigue, right? I mean, for those of you who, who are working in business, and man, I, I heard that so many different times. I felt that so many different times. Uh, the world was shutting down globally. Racial tensions and social injustice uh, seemed to be increasing after George Floyd's death on May 25th. Small, small businesses were beginning to close because of the economic impact of restrictions put in place because of COVID-19. Unemployment was starting to grow. Houses of worship 
were limited to small numbers. Closed, then reopened, then closed, then reopened, then closed again, and reopened, and supposed to be closed, and of now uh, were allowed to be opened. It was crazy. The Dow Jones fell from a high on February 10th of 29,398 points to 21,636 points by March 23rd, over a 25% decrease in 41 days because of the instable, unpredictable position the world was in. This isn't just California. This isn't just the United States. It was the entire world. Oh, we also had a presidential election, which showed uh, just how divided we are as a country. There was an increase in depression and despair and fatigue and death. What a year, huh? Wow. Thanks, Craig, for giving us such a great upper. Wow, we may have been better off not coming today. Well, I hope you don't feel like that when we're done. But I just want to try to let you know a, a realistic understanding. I, I'd rather deal with reality than bury my head in the sand. And I got to thinking about everybody looking to 2021. Oh, I can't wait for 2021. I'm going to have so much hope in 2021. And, and I want to let you know that I don't have hope in 2021. I'm not finding my hope in a new year. I'm finding my hope in the same God who allows us by his grace and mercy to live a new day. Now, I, I, I know there's excitement and, and optimism, optimism. You've got optimists who are thinking about, boy, I can't wait till 2021, you know, comes. And you've got pessimists. It's like, well, I don't know. We still have to make it through, you know, four more days before 2020 ends, right? And you've got all those extremes and, and maybe a lot of people in between. But you know what? People want to have hope in something. And so, why not a new year? Well, I, I wanted to share with you, and, and I know, again, this is kind of starting off dark or bleak, but that's okay because it's only going to get darker. Just letting you know where we're going here, folks. Um, if you thought 2020 was a bad year, <laughs> we're going to go to look at a time in Judah's history where they had 70 bad years. Seven zero. Okay, now, I'm not a young man, but I'm still not 70 yet. And I'm telling you, I can't imagine an entire lifetime of having to go through bad years. And uh, if you thought our world had a rough year, we're going to look at a time when Israel lost everything. They lost God's protection. They lost their king. They lost their capital, which was Jerusalem. They lost their wealth because the Babylonians took everything broke everything, shattered everything, killed many. And those that they didn't kill, they left them there with the reality that they would probably die because there was nothing left. 
There were no city walls to protect them. They were all bashed down. There was no food or water. Everything was gone. The Israelites lost their land. They lost people. And you know what? They lost hope. And so, we're going to be in the book of Lamentations, and I'm going to try to do an overview of this and uh, try to highlight a few things along the way. But Lamentations pictures a man of God puzzling over the results of evil and suffering in the world. The author, now probably Jeremiah, but the book does not say who the author is, and you have just equal great uh, support for, no, it wasn't Jeremiah, yes, it was Jeremiah. I'm going to go on into the points. When you hear me say Jeremiah, that's because I'm referring to him as the probable author of this book, all right? So uh, I can't say with certainty, but I can tell you that it seems to fit him being the author. And... Um, uh, he l lamented a, a tragedy entirely of Jerusalem's making. Now, people want to think, oh, this is, all, this is all because of the Babylonians. No, this is all because the Israelites disobeyed God. This is all because of their sin and unrepentance. And a holy God, he had to show his holiness, how holy he was. And there was judgment. And so it's easy for some people to go, oh, wow, that's kind of extreme. No, if it's not extreme, then God's not holy. See, we have a hard time grasping the wide difference between the pure holiness of God and how we just kind of fudge a little, right? Well, it's not that bad. That's no big deal. Everybody kind of kind of does that. And you can fill in the blank with whatever that is, right? Little lying, little gossip, little cheating, little slander. Not just the little stuff, right? And and so we look at this and and we go, "Man, this tragedy came because of the people. Now, listen, folks, I'm not going to say that all that's going on in the world is because we've brought it on ourselves, but I am. I mean, we have. We have. And I'm just as guilty as anybody else. And so, you know what, we, we, we've got to just be honest about these kind of things. Lamentations is made up of five poems. There's five chapters in there, and they're five different poems. And, and the Hebrew title for this book, so the Hebrews, it's not Lamentations, it's the word how. How. And you can see that in the very first word of the very first chapter of the very first verse in Lamentations. But here, here's the thing. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 are, are, are an acrostic or, or an alphabetical um, poem. What I mean by that is there are 22 alphabets in Hebrew. 
And of those 22 alphabets, what the writer, again, I, I, I'm going to refer to as Jeremiah, what he did is he wrote 22 verses in chapter 1, 22 verses in chapter 2, 22 verses in chapter 4, and they all followed, each verse followed the pattern of the alphabet. For us, I'm going to say, okay, for the first verse, it started with the letter A. The second verse, it started with the letter B. The third verse started with the letter C. So if we were doing it in English, it'd be 26 verses, right? So that's how it is with, with the Hebrew, only they have 22. And the author did that, and, and there's a lot of... Um, thinking behind that, most likely, it's kind of, it, it would help the people to remember. Because you know what? These poems, these were recited by the Israelite people after the 70 years because guess what? They were allowed to go back to their land. They were allowed to go back and rebuild. It wasn't forever because God couldn't break his covenant with his, with his people. The line of David, a savior was still going to come from that line. And so all of a sudden, we see that, okay, there's these 22 verses, and then in chapter 5, it's the only one that's not an alphabetic uh, uh, poem. It has 22 verses, but it doesn't follow in line. It's just 22 verses that, that aren't starting off with the letters in sequence. But chapter 3 interesting, it still follows the pattern, but there's 66 verses, because the writer wrote three verses per alphabet. So one, two, and three all started with that first letter. Then four, five, and six started with the next letter, and that's how that poem came about as well. It's pretty interesting. And Chapter 5, like I said, has no pattern, but it, it, it does still have 22 verses. And, and it's to help, again, the people to remember. I remember when I'm trying to memorize different books of the Bible, you know, um, go eat popcorn. Because I would always get the epistles mixed up. So go Galatians, eat Ephesians, popcorn was Philippians, and corn was Colossians. Something stupid, but guess what? In my head, that's just... And I know you don't want to get in my head, but that's just how it works, okay? Or I would try to think of so many other crazy things, right, just to try to memorize. Well, that supposedly was a, a tool, an instrument that would help the Israelite people to remember these laments. And these lament poems were a way to process emotion. And they, they were a way to voice confusion. I love the fact that under God's inspiration, he doesn't look down on this author. And he's like, who do you think you are? In the same way, I love, I love the book of Job. Job's got questions. And God, God doesn't come back and like, how dare you? How does God respond? Well, hmm. Let me ask you some questions. Uh, where were you when the foundations of the earth were made? Who, uh, who creates the wind and the sea and the stars? And by God's answer, 
all of a sudden it was kind of like Job realized, oh man, I spoke once, I'm not speaking again. Uh, Oh wow, there is so much I do not understand or know. And that was when he was dealing with his own pain and grief and hurt. And he didn't bring any of this on himself. He didn't, he, he wasn't, like the Israelites who kept ignoring God, who kept doing their own thing, who kept uh, being like all the people around them, who abandoned Yahweh. And yet, here we are. There, uh, one commentator said, Lamentations is a funeral dirge over the irrevocable past. And, and that's really what it is. These are songs, poems, and they are like dirges. And it's just kind of like, oh, you're singing these songs. You're, you're reading these poems, and it's like, oh, this is horrible. And it's, it's painful. Be, the people of this once great city experienced the judgment of a holy God, and the results were devastating. And as the verses of Lamentations accumulate, readers cannot help but wonder how many different ways Jeremiah could describe the desolation of the once proud city of Jerusalem. In chapter 2, verse 12, we read that the children begged food from their mothers. The verse says, they cried to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. So there's children that are starving. But it gets worse. Young men and women were cut down by swords. Drop down in chapter 2 to verse 21. In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. And I want you to know something. As we read these and as we look at these, uh, chapter 3 is the only chapter that is talking about a first person. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5, that's talking about it from the nation's perspective. It's not even coming from the Lord's perspective. It's as if the city is just crying out and crying out and wailing. Formerly compassionate moms, they use their children for food. Look at Lamentations chapter 4, verse 10. Says the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. It was so bad. That's what ha- was happening. Cannibalism. I mean, we can't fathom that. My mind thinks about the Donner Party, right? And just. It's so hard to wrap your head around. But again, when I think about how difficult this year was, man, this year got nothing on on what we read in the book of Lamentations. Even the city's roads mourned 
over its condition. In, in chapter one, verse four, we, we, we read this. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Jeremiah could not help but acknowledge the horrendous state of his city. It piled with rubble. The pain was so evident uh, in, in Jeremiah's reaction to this devastation that it clearly communicates the significance of a terrible condition in Jerusalem. But at the heart of the book, at the very center of this lament, over the effects of sin in the world at that time said a few verses devoted to hope in the Lord. And that's what I want us to look at. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. It says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So, let, let me give you the setting. Well, now I'll just keep reading. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. This statement of faith standing strong in the midst of the surrounding darkness, uh, Chuck Swindoll said, shines as a beacon to all those suffering under the consequences of their own sin and disobedience. Listen, we all are struggling with something. And if you're like me, it's more than one something. It's a few somethings, right? But yet we can, we can pretend and we can hide and we can act as if, you know, we got everything going good together. Let me tell you something. If you uh, don't want to deal with your sin, don't try to preach on a book like Lamentations. Because, boy, God's been, God hasn't been wrestling with me. I've been wrestling with God. Just got to tell you, I have been. And I was thinking, okay, I'm good, you know. During Christmas time, it's kind of tough. The in-between time, particularly when we got, you know, a, a Thursday night, Christmas Eve services, and we got Saturday or Friday and Christmas, and then there's Saturday, and then boom, right, we're right back here on Sunday. And I had prepared ahead of time, I thought, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm feeling kind of good, God. I'm feeling kind of good. I know it's going to sound like it's a hopeless kind of message, but no, it, it's, hopefully it's going to be encouraging. Hopefully we can put into perspective all that we've been going through this past year and I realize that I, I barely even touched the surface. I know that we've had a number of sicknesses. I know that we have had a number of deaths. You have been dealing with that. Family members, friends. And it hasn't been easy. There's been lots of jobs. Your income suddenly just went... There's been severed relationships. It's been even to the point where, you know what, we've had so many people who they haven't even been able to come and fellowship for a variety of reasons. 
But this passage right here, these five verses, they shine as a beacon to you and me under the consequences of my sin and disobedience. Speaking in the first person in chapter 3, Jeremiah pictured himself captured in this besieged city. So as you look at it, he says, I am the man who, in verse 1 of chapter 3, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me, had driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Dealing with this describes the severity of, of the, this day of the Lord. And day of the Lord has been used throughout Scripture, and we're waiting for the day of the Lord when he comes again, the second advent, right? But here was an instance of one of the days of the Lord. And he goes on, and he just talks about... Uh, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. And you know what? That's not, um, that's a, that's a, um, a metaphor for talking about, have you ever felt so overwhelmed with something that you have just felt like, oh man, that it makes you feel older than you really are? You know what I mean? Like, case in point, I can get up off the floor playing with my grandkids, and I love being with my grandkids, and I'm getting up, and I'm, and, and I'm hearing cracks and pops and all kinds of things. And as I'm getting up, I'm kind of, you know, I used to be able to pop on up and, yeah, let's go. And now I'm kind of like, ugh, one, one leg at a time, and then, and then the other leg, and I've got something to hold on to, and I'm like, yeah, pop, 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 crack, you know, and I was like, ugh, Right? And, and so this is, this is what he's referring to here. He feels as if he's just wasting away. It's so overwhelming that he's just feeling old. Time hasn't gone any faster than before, but the weight of everything has just, wow, slowed him down. And he, he's looking at that and and as he continues to talk, he has walled me about so that I cannot escape. In verse 7, he has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for out help, he shuts out my prayer. That's heavy. And yet, I, I don't know about you, but there have been times when I have really struggled praying because, you know, you, you pray and you, you wonder, God, are you there? Like, do you hear me? Like, my mental side says, I know you're here. I know it. But my emotional side, I got to be honest with you folks, is just kind of like, I, I don't know. I think so. And then it's like, I hope so. Right? I hope so. And then... Uh, Yet even in a seemingly hopeless situation, he somehow found hope in the Lord. And, you know, I, I wanted to just look over at verse 17. 
and following. He says, my soul is bereft of peace. Means it's just lacking. It's gone. It's nowhere around. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. That's where he's at for those first 18 verses. My hope from the Lord, you know what? It's gone. But man, do I, am I thankful for this. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, verse 21, and therefore I have hope. It marks the change in Jeremiah's attitude. The contentment he remembers renews the hope that is lost in verse 18. And then he continues on. What is it that he calls to mind? Look at verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Just stop there. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You know what that is? That's his covenant mercy. And even though Jeremiah or whoever the writer was, and even though all of the people, whoever were left in Jerusalem, who weren't slaughtered, who weren't exiled, taken to Babylon, whoever was left and wondering, mercy, mercy God, Jeremiah could come back and say, that steadfast love, that covenant mercy, it never ceases. It's like he's able to go, even though, think about this, God used Jeremiah in his own book, Jeremiah, that we know, you know, is attributed to him and he wrote, and I think in chapter 25, when he's telling the people this is the prophecy that God wants me to tell you that you're going to be taken away and gone into exile. And Jeremiah hadn't done anything wrong. And he's living with the consequences of something that, you know what, it's, it's almost like, I tried to tell you. I tried to warn you. And yet, okay, yeah, you get you get what you asked for kind of thing, and yet he is suffering in the same consequences with the people. So imagine his heart, the possibility of why am, I, why am I dragged into this? Why do I have to deal with this? Why do I have to suffer because of the rest of their sin? I tried to tell them, Lord. I tried to warn them. And yet he's in the midst of it. And that's why he had doubts, and that's why he was so without hope in verse 18. But thankfully, thankfully, he didn't stay there. Not only does a steadfast love or that covenant of mercy of the Lord, it never ceases, but then we look at this, his mercies never come to an end. It's like he's repeating the compassion. It never comes to an end. He still has compassion for us. 
for those of you who are believers, remember how it was before you knew Jesus. And remember this, he had compassion for you. He had patience for you. He always wanted to draw you near. But on our rebelliousness and our stubbornness and whatever else you want to throw in there, we were like, no, that's okay. Oh, yeah, I'm good. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. But so what? Had no impact on my life whatsoever. Didn't understand what a relationship with Jesus Christ meant. And then what happened when all of a sudden you got to come to that point? And it was like your eyes were opened, right? The scales fell off. The hardness around your heart broke. And all of a sudden, you started to understand what it meant to have a relationship with the living God who loves you more than any other person possibly could. Who has more compassion on you, more mercy for you, more love for you who is willing to forgive no matter what sin you have committed or will commit. And it's like, okay, now we start to get a little understanding. He says, they are new every morning, those mercies. We, it's brand new for us. We don't have to wait a whole year. It's each day. So don't have hope in a new year. For those of you who don't know Jesus, have hope in a new Savior for yourself. And for those of us that do know Jesus, we have to remember, boy, his mercies are new every single day. He says, great is your faithfulness. He recognizes, oh my goodness, it's like he's recognizing, wow, Lord, God's covenant fidelity, his commitment, he is faithful. I have been unfaithful in so many different ways in my life. And, and God's example of fidelity, of faithfulness, it is incredible. And then what does he say? The Lord is my portion, says my soul. And then look how he concludes. Therefore, I will hope in him. So how do we apply this? How do we, how do we take this and make it, you know, applicable? Well, one, Lamentations reminds us of the importance of, one, not only our mourning over our own sin, and we need to do that. I'm just going to challenge you. When's the last time you've mourned over your sin? You don't have to raise your hands. That's just a challenge. Maybe that's a great thing for us to get started with. Not about anybody else. Not about a, another family member. Not about a, a, a friend or a coworker or anything. Let's just deal with ourselves here. We've got to mourn over our own sin. Doesn't mean God's bringing it up to beat us up. But you know what? If you don't have peace, if you know you haven't brought that before the Lord, take care of that. For some, it's a salvation issue. 
because you've never trusted Christ with that. For the rest of us, this isn't a salvation issue. This is a heart issue. And so let's deal with that. But also asking the Lord for his forgiveness when we fail him. And I say this, folks, because there are times when, you know what, when I'm rushing through my prayers, uh, I don't want to deal with the whole, Lord, would you forgive me? So I kind of rush through that. Right? It's kind of like, okay, yeah, Lord, and you know what, I'm, I'm really sorry, and would you please forgive me? But I don't get specific. I don't get into it. I don't mourn how I have hurt him. Maybe if we did more of that, maybe then we would be able to, to not be so constrained, to not feel so overwhelmed. Maybe if we did more of mourning our own sins and our own struggles, maybe we wouldn't be so judgmental of others. Why can't they see that? Boy, they must not have prayed. They must not be asking God to help them. So I think much of Jeremiah's poetry concerns itself with the fallen bricks and the cracking mortar of the overrun city. So let me ask you, do you see any of that destroyed city in your own life? Are you mourning over the sin that's brought you to this point? Do you feel overrun by an alien power like the Babylonians? Now, let me ask you this. What would that alien be in your life? Can you define it? Is it fear? Is it depression? Is it sickness? Is it worry? Is it a person? Who's that alien? Are you in need of some hope from the Lord? Well, this passage, you'll find someone aware of sin's consequences and saddened by the results, but who has placed his hope and his trust in the faithful Lord. I, I ran across this story, and... Uh, in the country of Armenia in 1988. Samuel and Danielle sent their young son Armand off to school. And Samuel squatted before his son and looked him in the eye. He said, have a good day at school. And remember, no matter what, I'll always be there for you. They hugged and the boy ran off to school. And hours later, a powerful earthquake rocked that area. In the midst of the pandemonium, Samuel and Danielle tried to discover what happened to their son, but they couldn't get any information. The radio announced that there were thousands of casualties. So Samuel uh, grabbed his coat and headed for the schoolyard. And when he reached the area, he saw... Man, I, I... What he saw brought tears to his eyes. And his son's school... Armand's school was nothing but a pile of debris. And other parents were standing around and crying. And Samuel found the place where Armand's classroom used to be. 
and he began pulling off a, a broken beam off the pile of rubble. And then he, he grabbed a rock and put it to the side. And then he grabbed another one. And, you know, one of the parents tried to stop him. And they, they said, what are you doing? Samuel answered, I'm digging out my son. The man then just said, well, you're just going to make things worse. The building's unstable. And they tried to pull Samuel away from the work that he was doing. But Samuel said his jaw, and he kept working. And as time wore on, one by one, the other parents left. Then a firefighter tried to pull Samuel away from the rubble. And Samuel looked at him and said, will you help me? And the firefighter left, and Samuel kept digging. All through the night and into the next day, he continued digging. Parents placed flowers and pictures of the children on the ruins, but Samuel just kept working. He picked up a beam and pushed it out of the way when he heard a faint cry. Help. Help. Samuel listened, but he didn't hear anything again. Then he heard a muffled voice. Papa. Samuel began to dig furiously. And finally, he could see his son. Come on out, son, he said with relief. No, Armand said. Let the other kids come out first, because I know you'll get me. And child after child emerged from that rubble. Finally, until little Armand appeared. And Samuel took him in his arms, and here's what Armand told him, told his dad. I told the other kids not to worry, because you told me you'd always be there for me. Fourteen children were saved that day, because one father was faithful. So folks, how much more faithful is the God of the universe? Is the father of all mankind. Whether trapped by fallen debris or ensnared by life's hardships and struggles, we are never, ever cut off from God's faithfulness. He is true to his character. He is reliable and trustworthy and can be counted on always. Here's a simple definition. God's faithfulness, faithfulness means that everything he says and does is certain. He is where we find our hope when everything looks hopeless. I asked Jonathan just this morning, I guess maybe that's the things you can do uh, when you're a father-in-law, and uh, I asked him if he wouldn't mind singing Great is Thy Faithfulness and uh, have the worship team do that. And um, the author of this hymn's name was Thomas Obadiah Chisholm. He was born in a log cabin in Kentucky in 1866. He came to Christ at the age of 27 under the ministry of an evangelist named H.C. Morrison. 
Chisholm's health was unstable, and he alternated between bouts of illness and gainful employment in which he did everything from journalism to insurance to evangelistic work. And through all the ups and downs, he discovered new blessings from God every morning. And this chapter, this passage became precious to him. That God's compassions fail not, that they are new every morning. Great is the Lord's faithfulness. And Thomas later admitted that there was no dramatic story about writing this song. And while serving the Lord in Vineland, New Jersey, Thomas sent several poems to his friend, musician William Runyon, who was so moved by this one that he prayed earnestly for special guidance in composing the music to go with these words. Runyon was in Baldwin, Kansas at the time, and the hymn was published in 1923 in Runyon's private little songbook. It went rather slowly for several years, wrote Runyon. Then Dr. Will Houghton, who was the president of Moody Bible Institute of Chicago, discovered it and would say in chapel, Will, I think we shall have to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness. And the president of Moody Bible Institute had them sing that song almost every chapel. It became an unofficial theme song for the school. And when he died... It was sung at his funeral. Still, it remained relatively unknown for years until popularized in the world by George Beverly Shea because George Beverly Shea was at Moody Bible Institute and that's who Dr. Houghton asked would sing it in leading chapel and then there was a man by the name of Billy Graham who asked George Beverly Shea if he would go on evangelistic crusades with them and that song was sung at uh, almost every single crusade. Millions of people heard that song and were touched and moved by a simple, ordinary man who just wanted to reflect and write on how God was so faithful. Would you join me in prayer and be prepared to continue worshiping in song? Lord, thank you so much for our morning and thank you for your passage. And Lord, I know that I started and it was not the most uplifting. But Lord, I pray as we close that we are moved by the truth of who you are. And in spite of all that we are wrestling with, Lord, would you give us the strength and courage to trust you? May our hope not be found in a new year, but may our hope be found in the character and the truth of who you are. We praise you, Lord, and thank you that your mercies are new every morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.